Why don't you take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 5. This week we come to the end of Matthew 5, so next week we will go to chapter 6. But this morning we'll finish 5. As we begin, I want you to consider this. That we live in a time and in a culture where we encouraged, if not expected, to have enemies. And not only to have enemies, but to live with a sense of enmity towards other people. I wonder if you've recognized this. We are encouraged in so many parts of our lives to identify the opponents. And there's going to be people we disagree with. But not only to identify the opponents, but to be antagonistic towards them. To be hostile towards the other side. I was thinking this week about how early this idea of opposition and antagonism started for me. The idea that I need to know what side I'm on so I can oppose the other side. And the first memory I had of this, other than maybe Cheryl, was I needed to know very early on, am I an Aggie or a Red Raider or a Longhorn? On a West Texas playground, this is an important thing. And it wasn't really, I never, I never got the sense that it was much about who we were for as much as it was who we were against. And once you identify who you're against, you need to let them know I'm against you, okay? Now, a lot of kids, their parents may have gone to one of these schools. They may have some kind of connection. And so it, it, they were just born into it. Me, I didn't have that. And so there was a decision to be made, which was made pretty easy when my mom at a garage sale bought me a a burnt orange jersey that said Texas across the front. And she didn't buy it because of the university. It just said Texas, right? But one day I was at a friend's house and his dad who graduated from A&M said, oh, you're a Longhorn fan. And I said, yeah. (laughs) And so it's been. If you didn't grow up in Texas, this may not mean much to you, but Because I was a Longhorn fan, that meant I needed to learn Aggie jokes, right? Because I needed to know how to antagonize the opposition. may seem silly talking about sports, but the point is that this is something that's built into us from a very early age. Know who the opponent is and be hostile towards them. Take sides and then have an appropriate sense of enmity towards the other side. And we could spend the rest of the morning identifying areas where you experience this. The most obvious for most of us is politics. There's an expectation that we are either on the right or we are on the left, and once we've chosen our side, we know who the enemy is. And culturally, we are encouraged to live with a sense of hostility towards the other side. Same with social issues, right? Know what side you're on, and we're encouraged to generate an active resentment toward anyone with another view. So whether it's race issues or abortion issues or immigration issues or economic issues or government mandate issues or vaccine issues, we know who the enemy is, right? Right? I'm talking extremes. 
But it's sad and it's true that for many people, these very issues lead to broken relationships. It means there are some people we will talk to and there's some people we won't. There's a spirit of enmity that makes social media a really fun place to be, right? Because after all, online, people aren't people. They're just ideas and opinions to be squashed. Sarcasm, right? So before we go far, let me, let me say what I'm not saying, and then I'll say what I am saying. What I'm not saying is there are not important issues. I'm not saying that we shouldn't know where we stand. There are issues where we should know where we stand, and we should be active in advancing good. And I don't think it's any secret in our church that I was very thankful for the Supreme Court decision that protected the lives of the unborn. I don't make any apologies for that. We should know where we stand. We're not saying the issues aren't important, but have you considered how our culture encourages us not just to know where we stand and not even to uphold good, but to hate those who are against us? You see that difference between knowing the issues and caring about the issues and being hostile towards the other side? There's a difference, which takes me back to where we started. We live in a time and a culture where we are encouraged, if not expected, to have enemies, and not only to have enemies, but to live with a sense of enmity towards others. And if we aren't careful, we can allow the culture to tell us how we should respond to those who have different views than we do. But as we come to Matthew 5, Jesus tells us there is a particular way we're supposed to treat our enemies. And it couldn't be farther from the way the world is training us. As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been considering what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. This, this acknowledgement, I think it's an important acknowledgement for us on Independence Day to remember we are people of a different kingdom. And as people who are part of a different kingdom, we're called to live in a, a different way. And quite frankly, we're being called to live in ways that don't come naturally to us. Life in the kingdom of God is different, should look different than life in the kingdom of the world. It's countercultural. And I would suggest that the passage we come to this morning may be the most extreme call to countercultural living that we have seen up to this point in Matthew 5. It's not natural. By nature, we identify enemies and we live in hostility towards our enemies. By nature, when someone does us wrong, we respond wanting to hurt them, right? But in the sermon, Jesus calls us to something different. He calls us not to hate our enemies, but to love them, to pray for them, to have the same heart for them that God does. Maybe you've never felt the tension between the Aggies and the Longhorns. Maybe you've never been phased by political or social divides. But I think every one of us should be challenged by what Christ is calling us to in this passage because we all probably have people we wish we did not have to interact with. We all have people we would we just wish they weren't part of our lives. 
that this is the call of Christ. Love. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 43 to 48. So I hope you have your Bible open. You'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your fathers, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you've been with us, then you know that in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is using six different illustrations to make one point. So we've spent six weeks in one main point. The situation is, is that there's the religious teachers, and they have laid out, here is a standard of righteousness. So if you live this way, you'll be right with God. If you do these things and don't do these things, then you can be right standing before God. And yet Jesus is making the, the point that the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, it, it missed the heart of God. They had erected a system that fell short of God's true standard. And so we've been working now for six weeks through these six illustrations, and each one is a contrast where Jesus is contrasting what the scribes and the Pharisees taught with what God truly expects from his people. Six contrasts and outlining has been easier over these last six weeks for me, just to, because all of these passages have basically the same structure. They all start with, you have heard it said, and then Jesus tells us what the scribes and the Pharisees were teaching. And then he says, but I say to you, and he tells us what God has truly called us to as his people. That's been the pattern, and it's the pattern we see again today. Starting there in verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they encouraged the people of God to, to have this posture. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. If I can be honest, it sounds like an American sentiment. If, you know, if you've been with us, you know that a lot of the things that are said come from the Old Testament. But what Jesus is doing is not taking issue with the Old Testament, but taking issue with the way the scribes and the Pharisees applied the Old Testament scriptures. And the first half here, it, it comes directly from Scripture. We can go to several different passages, but for example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the law of God says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So a clear teaching from God for his people, love your neighbor. But the question comes out, here's the question. Okay, who is my neighbor? 
That's the kind of question that the scribes and Pharisees love to debate. God says we have to love our neighbors, so, so help me. I need to know how far does my love extend? Who's my neighbor? And you may remember this is a, a conversation that comes up in the Gospels. There's a, a lawyer who, who comes to Jesus, and we're reminded that this was a, it was a prevalent question. It was a question that people weighed in on. So they go to Jesus, the, the, the teacher, and the, this lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? What we know is that the scribes and the Pharisees had answered the question, and their definition was pretty narrow. See, they defined their neighbors as their fellow Israelites, those who are the same race and same religion. So as Jews, they believed God called them to love other Jews. These were their neighbors. And if you remember Luke 10, the question is asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus takes that narrow definition and he expands it. He gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, we have a Samaritan here, enemy, helping an Israelite. And Jesus said, that man knows who his neighbor is. This is the pattern we've seen over and over that the scribes and the Pharisees, they were taking the law of God and drawing lines that missed the heart of God. We can go back. You've heard it said, don't murder. That was the standard of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus says, don't be angry in your heart. That's murder. Or you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, I say to you, don't lust in your heart. This is adultery. It's been the pattern. They were missing the heart of God, and we see it again. The command was, love your neighbor as yourself, but they narrowed the definition of neighbor. They narrowed the scope of who they were called to love. That's not all. They also added to it. Hate your enemy. Now, we know in the Old Testament, we have passages that, that call us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Where in the Old Testament does, do we get the command, hate your enemy? The answer is we don't. It's, it's nowhere said. It's not part of the law of God. And so we could easily just say, see, guys, it's not even in the Bible. What are you thinking? It, but we don't have to go very far to see how logically this made sense to them and how even biblically they found ways to justify it. Let's remember the nation of Israel had enemies and God identified them as enemies. There were people who opposed God and God said, I will judge them. To go further, he said things to his people like this. Don't associate with them. Don't intermarry with other nations. Come out from among them and be separate. Over and over, God drew lines of distinction so we don't have to work hard to see the logic. The thinking is, we're the people of God. We love God. On the other hand, there's some people who are opposed to God, and God himself has said he will judge them. So conclusion, love the people of God. Hate those whom God will judge. We're called to love our fellow countrymen and hate the enemy. Do you follow the train of thinking? It's not as far-fetched as we may have thought. They believed that they were honoring God by hating those who hated God. Again, it sounds a bit like a, an American Christian sentiment. They taught you honor God this way. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
love the people of God and hate the enemy of God. And logically, it makes sense. And if we're honest, many of us are inclined to think and live the same way. It comes natural to us, after all. We love those who are like us. We love those who love the things we love. And on the flip side, we're hostile towards those who are hostile towards us or hostile towards the things that we love. And we're good, polite people, so we don't use words like hate. But I think we have to be honest and admit that we do make distinctions. That there are people we should love and God wants us to love them. And then there are people who in other categories that probably should be opposed and probably don't deserve the same kind of love. We oppose them because they oppose God. They're bad for society. There might be some politicians we would put there, and, and maybe rightfully so. Or they're going to corrupt our children. They're making my life miserable to bring it a little closer to home. Real categories, and there is a place for standing against what is wrong. But do you hear what Jesus is saying? There are enemies, perhaps, but he's calling us to interact with them differently than we would naturally. Functionally, many of us live this way, loving our neighbors and hating our enemies. But Jesus calls us to something unnatural and countercultural. Verse 44, I say to you, Christ says to you, God says to us, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, as we talk about politics and social issues, maybe you would say, I would never use the word enemy. That's, that's, a, that's a really strong word. But in this context, Jesus is talking to people who had real enemies. They had been defeated and taken over by four nations. They were living, being ruled by the Romans. They had a clear and visible enemy. And it's come from another angle. The disciples, here they are standing with Jesus, and they're starting to get pushback, right? And not just weird looks or insults, but their lives could be at stake because of what they believed. They had real enemies who were a real threat to them. And yet Jesus says to them, love your enemies. And if to them who had real and life-threatening enemies, how much more to us who have those with whom we disagree? Before we go too far, let me just say again what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying love what they love. He's not saying endorse what they endorse or support what they support. It's not a call to lay down our convictions or to become soft on the truth. Just we'll take that off. That's another sermon, okay? What he is telling us is that we are called to live in a radically countercultural way. It's a command to have the heart of God for those who position themselves against us. It's not natural and it's not the way of the world. What comes naturally is to hate those who hate us to throw stones at those who throw stones at us, and to make miserable those who cause us misery. But that's not the way of the kingdom of God. As those who are part of the kingdom of God, we're called to love not just our neighbors whom we like and who love us, but to love our enemies. 
What does that mean? What does that even look like? I think the temptation is to hear this. Okay, I'm going to love my command, and then we're going to do what the Pharisees and scribes do and, and kind of soften our application of it. And so we may decide that I'm going to love my enemy by just staying away from them, right? I'm going to forget they exist. I'm going to give them their space. I'm not going to be antagonistic. I'm just going to get out of the way. If I just keep my distance, there won't be any big blow-ups. I won't say anything I shouldn't say. But that's not really the command, is it? The command is not avoid your enemies. The command is not stay out of the way of your enemies. The command is love them. It's active. In this command, Jesus is calling us to move towards our enemies, not away from them. He's calling us to do good for them. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This should clear it up. It's not passive. He's not saying love them by staying out of their way or love them by not cursing at them. No, he gives something to do. Move towards them. Open your heart to them. And here's a way you can do that. Pray for them. And, and yeah, there's a place for imprecatory prayers, but I don't think this is it. Okay? We're not being told here to pray God's judgment on them. I would argue he's calling us to pray for their good. And, and the reason I would, I would say that is because in the parallel passage to this one in Luke 6, verse 27, it's a very similar context. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Do good to them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. It's not permission to pray a spiteful prayer. It's a call to do good, to bless, and to pray. It's an act of love, and it's the kind of love that Christ exemplified for us. Christ was persecuted in a way that none of us will ever experience and no other person could ever experience because he did not deserve it in the least, and yet he was hung on a cross by those who hated him. And do you remember his prayer in Luke 23? They came to the place that's called the skull, and they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said to them, or he prayed rather, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's not a better example than this one. Jesus prayed for those who persecuted him. Experiencing the most unjust act of all time, and yet his prayer was forgive them, bless them, do good for them. If you want another example, go and read Acts chapter 7 this afternoon. That could be your homework. Acts chapter 7. I'll just read the end of it. This is the story of the first martyr, Stephen. They're stoning him because of his faith and his proclamation of Christ. And we read in Acts 7, 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. He was dying, being killed by those who hated him. And this was his prayer, God have mercy on them. 
many of us experience far less. And our response is cursing and hatred. Jesus is not just calling us to tolerate our enemies or to avoid them. He's calling us to love them. He's calling us to do good for them. It's worth asking questions of our own hearts. It'd be easier just to skip this part, but I think it's good for us. Are you willing to pray for those who make your life difficult? Do you ask God to do good for them and to forgive them, or do you just simply ask God to punish them? Where's your heart? Do you ask God to save and sanctify those who do you harm? Or do you simply ask him to get rid of them? Should be a good gauge for our hearts. He's calling us to love them and to love them the way that he has loved us. That's what we get as we keep reading. Verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You know the phrase, like father, like son? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. There are ways of saying children look like their parents, children act like their parents. That's what Jesus is getting at in this verse. If we are children of God, we should be growing to look more like him. And one way to look like him is to love our enemies because that's the way God loves. God extends his love to sinners and enemies. After all, he loves us, sinners. As we love our enemies, we emulate him. We see this in verse 44, the example of the way God loves even those who don't love him. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So here's our example. A world full of people who hate God, a world full of people who are committed to wicked into not submitting to him, but every day without fail, they see the sun come up. And they have water to drink because of the rain that falls. Every day, people all across the world receive good things from the hand of God. They benefit from his creation and from his kindness. He makes the sun to shine on the just and on the unjust. The rain to fall on the just and on the unjust food to eat for the just and for the unjust. And just to drive home the point that it comes from him, I love this just small distinct, this small thing. In the, he says, for he makes his son to rise. You notice that? He makes his son to rise on the, it's, my, it's his, right? It's all his. The stars are his. The rain is his. Gravity that keeps us from floating off into the sky. It's his. Plants and animals that we benefit from and enjoy are his. And yet, we all receive them. The just and the unjust. It's what theologically we call common grace. Is God going to judge evil? Yeah. 
Are we called to join in with evil thinking? No. But just like our Father does good to the just and the unjust, we are supposed to be like our Father. God is holy and just, and he will judge. But he also makes the rain to rise, or the sun to rise on the evil and good, and rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It's common grace. We see God's kindness shown to sinful men. And that's, just, that's not even anything compared to the kind of love he showed through his son. Don't forget, church, we were all his enemies. Every one of us. And yet God set out to change us from enemy to friend, from enemy to children. What kind of love is this that we should be called children of God? The world doesn't have a category for that kind of love. The way of the world is love those who love you and hate those who oppose you, but that's not the way of God. The Bible says every one of us was born in hostility towards him. But Paul says in Romans, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners, we were enemies, and he died for us. John says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We were all his enemies, and yet he loved us. And now Jesus is calling us to to emulate that love, to pray for those who persecute us, to bless them and not to curse them. It's so countercultural, but we live in a different kingdom right? We've been made citizens of the kingdom of God, so we're called to live God's way. And if we do this, well, we're going to stand out. If you love those who blast you on social media, you don't blast back. If you're done wrong by your employer over and over, and yet you love that person well. And I'm not saying we don't try to rectify this, but but we love the person well, right? That stands out. This is what we saw earlier at the very beginning before we got into all these comparisons and contrasts. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father is in heaven. How do we, how do we be light? How, how, do we look, how, how do we stay salty? Love your enemies. The world says we should hate and be hostile towards our political opponents. God says operate in love. The world says if someone does you wrong, leave them, forget them. God says move towards them. It's natural for us to love those who love us, but Jesus calls us to more. Love those who hate you. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And 
we don't get the punch because we dislike the IRS, but maybe hate is a strong word. For them, the tax collectors were the worst of the worst. They were dishonest. They were traitors. They were crooks. Jesus says, even those who you consider the worst of the worst, they love those who love them. That's natural. Then he gives another example just to drive home the point. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Gentiles, those, those were sinners and nothing more. People opposed to God and the ways of God. But Jesus says, even the Gentiles are kind to their family and friends. Calls are more than that. If you only love those who love you, that doesn't set you apart from the world. This is where I think many of us are guilty of playing the same game as the scribes and the Pharisees. We justify ourselves based on our own standards. We create our own system of measure. So I love my family really well. And I, I love my friends really well. And I, I even love my church really well. And there's a couple of people at work that I love really well. And so in the category of love, I'm knocking it out of the park. And we let all that good appease our conscience. Don't stop doing those things. Don't stop loving your family and your friends and your church and your co-workers well. But recognize that the call of God goes beyond that. We're called to love those who aren't easy to love. It's a different standard. It's called to love those who are hard to love, to pray for those who mistreat us, to love and pray for those who do us harm, to love and pray for those who actively work against us. It doesn't mean we ignore sin. It doesn't mean that anything goes. Again, God will judge sin. But we reflect our Father and we love our enemies. As the people of God, God is the standard, and we see that so clearly in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this verse brings us to a conclusion not only of this paragraph, but of everything back to verse 21, okay? scribes and the Pharisees, they had this system of righteousness. If you live this way, you can be right with God. And so Christ gave us six illustrations contrasting the, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They said, be righteous like this. Jesus says, be perfect as my Father is perfect. So see how this ends this whole section. And it's true of our love. Our Father loves perfectly. And we read while ago in 1 John that as we love like Him, we're being perfected. If you want a standard of righteousness, it's not the standard of the scribes and Pharisees, and it's certainly not the standard of the world. The standard is God himself. So we don't love like the world loves. We love the way God loves, and his love is perfect. And if verses like 48 terrify you when we're told to be perfect like he's perfect, know that you're not called to do it on your own. That's why Jesus came. We can't be perfect, and yet 
God sent his son to die for us. He showed perfect love in sending his son to die for sinners. And the Bible says that all who repent of our sins and have faith in God will be forgiven of our sins and will be granted the righteousness of Christ. And then he sends his spirit and it's through his spirit that you're enabled to do things that you couldn't do on your own. It's through his spirit you're enabled to do things like love your enemies because it's unnatural. And if we operate in the flesh, we'll never be able to do it, but we operate in the spirit that God has given us through Christ. And this is why we can do things that we could never do on our own. Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to live as the children of God. We love the way he loves. His love is perfect. His love is not based on our goodness. His love is not based on our love for him. And we're called to love others the same way. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We're almost done, but as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking a lot about the ways we justify ourselves. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing, right? I've kept the law. I've done these things. And we do it too. And maybe even throughout this whole sermon, you've not had any problem, felt any conviction, because you're thinking, I don't have any enemies. But do you have people you treat with enmity? Are there people you actively ignore because of the way they've treated you? Are there people you say, I don't hate them, I just don't want to be around them. You may not think of yourself as having enemies, but there may be people for whom you have enmity. And just the changing of that word helped me and opened up a whole category <laughs> of people I was reminded I need to love. Our enemies aren't always people who threaten our safety. Most of the time, they are ordinary people who have been mean, judgmental, or hateful towards us. And maybe there are times when in your heart you treat your spouse or your kids or your coworkers as enemies because of their sin against you. The call from Jesus is to love them and pray for them. And yes, love often looks like sharing the gospel and calling for repentance. That's another sermon, I think. Consider this as we close. Consider what God could do through us if we learned to love this way. Consider how loving this way could change your home when you're committed to loving well, even when you're sinned against. Consider how loving this way could change your workplace when you're committed to loving well, even when your coworker takes advantage of you. Consider how loving this way could impact others as you see their interactions on social media are motive, and, and you're motivated not by anger, but by love. Not by a desire to win an argument, but a desire to be like Christ. This is different than the world operates, the way they operate, isn't it? It's even different than the way most professing Christians operate. But this is what it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. May God help us to live and love as his people. 
Let's pray.